Welcome to the first two-part episode of the Data Science Salon Podcast. I'm your host, Kim McCallum, AI consultant, writer, and senior content advisor at Formulated By, which is the company behind this podcast. This time around, I caught up with product manager Chris Butler to talk about the intersection of AI and product. Chris's two decades of professional experience have taught him a lot about the role of uncertainty. So we dig deep into what that term really means, how much data scientists need to concern themselves with uncertainty in their work, and how this relates to a company's values. We also explore the context around which we collect data, as well as concepts like polysocial reality, design individualism, and contextual integrity. We covered a lot of ground in 45 minutes. Now, because of our tight schedule, we had to stop before we could get to our second topic. That's why we're very thankful that Chris will be back in the next episode to talk about communal computing and what that means for AI. And with that, on with the show. First things first, Chris, welcome in. So glad you could be here. Um, some of you might actually recognize Chris's name. You spoke at a data science salon event a couple of years ago, which is where we met. Um, had some great conversations. I think for the purpose of this recording, we won't mention you know what we will refer to as the Miami incident. We'll keep that to ourselves. Um, but you know, jokes aside, had some great conversations, stayed in touch. And sometime last year, you and I uh, co-wrote an article along with another data science salon podcast guest, Shane Glenn, called Our Favorite Questions, in which the three of us, which would be the attorney, the product manager, that's you, the AI consultant, that's me, explored the sometimes unexpected questions that we find useful in our work. And so a couple of those questions led us to what we're going to talk about today. Chris, the quick breakdown, like, who are you? Where do you currently work? What do you do? Yeah, great. Well, great to be here. And, and thanks for agreeing to talk to me again, even after the whole Miami thing. Um, My attorney said I had to, so. <laughs> He's a good, yeah, Shane's a good attorney. Um, but I, so, so yeah, I, I'm Chris Butler. I work at Cognizant as the global head of product operations. Um, and I'm based out of Oakland, California. My, my role at Cognizant is a fairly new one. I started back in March of this year. Uh, my role is to really product manage the product manager experience at Cognizant. And so that's a, a group of about 80 or so product managers, product analysts, um, product strategists. And then I end up doing a lot of work with actually an organization of about 15,000 people, which includes full stack engineers, architects, et cetera, et cetera. And so we try to lead the way with how do we steward a community of practice? So my, my role is a lot about like people, process, and technologies. How do we make people more effective, like a standard operational role? Um, but then also, you know, I'm the, uh, I guess the, the main coach or king of OKRs within, <laughs> within Cognizant as well. So I do a lot of help around that. And then I do a lot of uh, client work as well. It tends to be more like product leadership, coaching or OKR help, uh, things like that. Um, but my past, I mean, I, I think, you know, I've been doing product management for a really long time, almost uh, over 20 years now. We won't say how many years over 20 years, um, but then I've, you know, places you would have heard of where I've, I've worked at were places like Microsoft, Waze, Kayak, um, Facebook Reality Labs was where I just left uh, to join Cognizant, where I was working on the portal device, which is something you know, I think is a really interesting device. And we should talk about communal computing in general. 
um, at some point during this conversation. But uh, where where we met, um, and part of the reason why I was at the, the DSS conference was to really talk about this intersection between design thinking and artificial intelligence. And so um, that was when I was at a, a company called Philosophy, where I was director of product strategy and AI projects. Um, and it was a design consultancy. So essentially, my job was to fake uh, everything we could fake about of machine learning and AI, um, but really trying to take in some of the lessons about how do you build the right type of interface. So, you know, we never considered a project where it was just a pure model. It was always about how do we how do we link up the what people are going to be interfacing with with these models in some way. So um, that's why I think for like a short, shining year or so, I was the only person talking about design thinking and AI. Um, now there's lots of like great practitioners in the world that are doing this. Um, so, so, you know, you, you have to stay on top of the hype cycle, I think is maybe the key lesson there. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of my background. I mean, I, I think um, I also dabble in been doing a lot of research recently into how do we, how do we make learning look more like work? And so uh, this is this partially to apply to the group that I help steward today, but I think also just how do we get people to interpret and internalize kind of tacit and expert knowledge? And it's a really, really hard problem. And so um, I've been using techniques from the military, like decision forcing cases of wargaming. I think there's been some really interesting work in simulation. I've been starting to attend more and more meetups around kind of 3D and VR and AR types of uh, integration of training and simulation. Um, I still think that it works very well for industrial and like applications where you're moving through a space and could get crushed by something, right? Like those are the times you really want to do VR. Um, I'm unsure what it means for product management at this point, but I, I think that's like another thing I think is really interesting. And then maybe the last thing that I'll just mention here in the really schizophrenic set of topics that I end up thinking about is, is this idea of like adversarial thinking. And in general, just how do we use adversarial thinking to really I don't know, build better models for ourselves, right? And, and, and that's maybe an internalization aspect. So how do we use, you know, I, I think it's the, uh, the, the phrase is, you know, metal sharpens metal um, is, a, is a really good one, I think, uh, that is interesting to bring here. So um, yeah, that's, that's probably me. I mean, I, I definitely was not supposed to be an engineer or um, a product manager. My dad wanted me to be an industrial designer. Um, but when we ended up going to uh, Art Center was where he really wanted me to go to become an uh, industrial designer. Um, great school. But when I brought in my zip disk full of like commercial art, um, they were asking me where all of my my sketches and sculptures were. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm a commercial artist. I don't I don't know why you want me to talk about all this fine art stuff. Um, and at that point, I, I guess I realized that I, I was probably not going to be an artist like my dad or a graphic designer. Um, but I did apprentice to him for a long time. So I do I do think a lot about the design of things. And I do think that in some way I'm creative, not in the way he was creative, right? But but creative in my own way. So that that's that's something that I think about a lot. Yeah. And also I should say congratulations if memory serves, you are the first product manager we've had on the podcast. So right. I think all the listeners will rate everything about product management on what you say today. So there's there's no pressure. But jokes aside, you know, especially once we're done recording here, you and I should talk a little bit more about simulation. I've been thinking a lot about that lately as well. But We'll save that for later. Today, what we wanted to talk about was a little closer to what's near and dear to the world of AI. You know, it's one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you is because you and I have had some really interesting conversations around the intersection of product and AI, right? And so I guess to, to set the tone for the listeners, one of the things I was hoping we can cover today is what is the PM's role 
and the world of product and AI. Yeah, absolutely. This is one where I, I keep on seeing all these talks about like AI product managers and they, they go really in depth to types of models. And I, I, I think the, the biggest problem, I think the biggest problem is that we're trying to really understand all the technologies when the reality is, is it's more about the discussion with engineers or with model trainers or people that are building all of these really complex or, or non-deterministic systems, right? What are the trade-offs that we're trying to reach with regards to this product? That is the key thing that every product manager should be working with every um, you know, engineering, engineer, AI practitioner, data scientist is really about the trade-offs because there's always going to be a trade-off in some way. And it could be how long does it take for this to train? How much data do we need? Um, things like what are the false positive or false negative rates? Those are all things that are discussions sh- that should happen between the product manager and the engineer. And I'm going to use engineer as shorthand for kind of anybody that do- does this type of work, right? I, I realize that there's now a-, a split in like who's an AI or machine learning engineer. <laughs> um, and-, and that idea of like data engineer versus data scientist, I realize like there's a lot of kind of blossoming of different um, terms in the world today. Um, but, but I think that's, that's always the, the thing that I give coaching to other more junior product managers when they try to get too involved in the, the guts of these technologies, you end up losing sight of, of the main thing, which is really a curiosity about the world, right? The moment that you start going from a technical standpoint, I think this idea of certainty versus uncertainty makes you think about things in a very certain term, right? Because you have to ship a line of code, you have to deploy it somewhere, you have, to, you have to build something that actually exists, right? In the realm of uncertainty, there's still a lot of things that don't exist that could exist. And the moment that you get too focused in on the technology, I think you lose sight of that. And, and to me, the product mindset itself is really just the behavior of embracing uncertainty, right? And I think product managers, really great product managers, end up really thinking about that uncertainty and leveraging it for the team. Because, for example you may not always know what the effects of a model, like when training a model with a certain data set, you may have guesses about the way that that model will operate in the world. Um, but you also, you don't know for sure. And so that that's really important to be able to understand that. And I, I would argue that when it comes to how machine learning is deployed in systems today, it's not just about that initial training, but it's about how are you now reactive to the way that this interacts with the world, right? Because if you do not actually, like if you end up building a system that's doing horrible things, you need to change the way the system works, right? <laughs> like I, I think that should be like a baseline um, for a lot of this stuff. So it ends up being not like the principles in how you build something, it's the principles in how you react to something that went wrong, right? And and, and this this gets to values as well, right? I, I end up coaching a lot of people on this idea, on all these things like mission and values and principles and strategy. The reality is, is that values are not so much like what you do, it's about what you are not willing to do. And so I think this is where when we really talk about machine learning, how when we start thinking about bias, these like wrong assumptions and how these models can actually make negative impact on the world, if you're, if you're not now adjusting the way you want to build something based on that knowledge, um, you know, I think that's really bad. I, I mean, the example I think that's brought up a lot is this idea of Amazon training the uh, resume screener that then kept on rejecting women, right? Because it would look at, it would look for like women's colleges and they were like, Hey, 
we found some bias here and we're not going to release this. And everybody kind of says that is a bad thing, but I think that's, that's actually the right thing to do at that point, right? Like you, they should not be using this model because it's just going to continue to perpetuate biases that they had. Now there's a lot of other work they need to do to make it so that they don't perpetuate the biasy with all their other systems, but at least this now, you know, non-deterministic system will not aid in that perpetuation, right? That's, that's the part that I think is really important. Yeah, I think so. And I think something you said a minute ago there. So I know, I know yeah. before we hit record, you and I were joking about um, a, lot of the, a lot of the materials we'd prepped for this call. Um, one that I actually hadn't prepped, but I ISF saved because I'm using it in another paper. Uh, you talked about you know, this notion of what a company does, how it reacts to something that's done. Uh, yeah. It says a lot about it. So a lot of listeners will already know that risk is probably my second favorite four-letter word. And so there's, uh, <laughs> there's very, um, very famous uh, expert in the, in the operational risk field called Ariane Chappelle. And she has this great line, which is risk appetite is the sum of what your company is doing right now, right? Yeah. Which is another way of saying that, you know, you can, you can talk all you want about how we're doing risk planning this and mitigation that and assessment this way and that way. But deep down, what you're doing every day really determines what is your risk appetite. I think that describes a lot of AI firms as well these days. Well, I would even take it a step further to say that it's not just, like it's the organization's intersecting risk appetite across all of the different regulatory and, and kind of compliance bodies within your organization, right? And so it's it's not just like the idea of your organization as a circle. It's like this really small circle in the middle of this larger organizational circle because legal has to have their say, you know, the, the idea of uh, privacy, policy, security, integrity, you know, all these these people that have real reasons for being concerned, by the way. I'm not I'm not discounting this mm-hmm. in any way. But I think this is where it ends up being a much smaller window, especially for very large companies, right? Than it would have been otherwise of like the just the overall of the of the group. And I I mean, I, I know that you like risk a lot. I would just say that risk to me is actually the part that we know about, right? And and uncertainty is really the aspect that we don't know. And so that to me is what's really interesting. And that's why, you know, thinking about um, some of the techniques that I use to get at this are things like randomness, right? Like stochastic process ends up really getting us into this realm of that. It doesn't matter what I actually believe. What are my assumptions about the world? It starts to make me consider truly random things. And so this is where I think um, even Khan from the, the standpoint of like wargaming, like from Rand, right? Who came up with mutually assured destruction and all these other amazing like scenario planning things. Um, you know, he, he talks a lot about that wargaming, especially with randomized elements, right? Helps you find the shape of the future. It doesn't tell the future though. And so I think that's really interesting, right? Yeah, I think that actually dovetails very well with, um, another definition around, well, the twin definitions of risk and uncertainty. So in the, in the risk, in the risk literature space, the most common phrasing of this is that uncertainty is what can't be measured. Whereas, you know, risk is a thing where you're able to put some sort of quantitative feeling behind it, probability, probabilities and that sort of thing. But um, for those who are familiar with the work of Douglas Hubbard, he works in decision research. I prefer his framing, which is that uncertainty is when there's more than one possible outcome, right? In other words, certainty is when there's only one path. And that sounds really simple, but the more you think about it, the deeper it gets, because if you can build on that, you start to realize that certainty only exists in retrospect. If it's happened, it's happened. And if it hasn't happened, 
it may not happen, right? Which, which gets us to the, this whole notion of no perfect information, which I think ties back to what you're saying about war games, which is, well, if we knew what was going to happen, we wouldn't have to practice for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I, I, I mean, I, I always bristle at this, this idea of, of certainty. And the reason why is because to your point, right, it's backwards looking, you can find causative reasons for something, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, especially when we talk about like five whys, right? From the, the, from the standpoint of lean and everything, it gets at like, well, yeah, we found the reason, but was there any way that we would have one been able to detect that this was happening back then? And then two, would we have done anything differently? even if we could have detected it. Because I would argue that generally it's the way that the organization works that ends up really causing these things to come into being, right? And, you know, we're not going to, I don't think we need to have the argument about causation or randomness, true randomness, things like that. that that's maybe like a deeper topic that I can get into. But but I, I, do, I do always wonder, you know, I think that then everything is almost uncertain under that that, that Hubbard definition, right? I mean, there's, there's always going to be some nuance about something. Um, and this is why I think it's, you know, get putting on my like product manager hat for a little bit. It's just, this is why like roadmaps that are longer than three months are just ridiculous. Right. Um, and I, I, I think the moment that you start to try to predict out more than a couple months or years, especially in today's kind of competitive or landscape environment, you just don't get anywhere. Right. And, and this is maybe where I think we start hitting up against, like how machine learning systems actually are built, they tend to take a very long time, right? And and especially when it comes to data collection, right? Even, even just my time at like Facebook, for example, at that large of a scale, data collection, data rights, data, you know, consent are humongous issues for all of us and end up really causing sometimes models, you know, in the hypothetical to take like years to actually get to uh, an end consumer. And so what I wonder is how much is the kind of, the hill moving out from underneath of us while we are building out these things. And I don't know, this is something I don't think is anywhere now solved, but I just, I tend to, I tend to think that uncertainty is the existence that we need to be good at. And especially when we talk about people being part of a large organization, they need to be better about uncertainty. And so I, I just gave a talk as part of uh, this Cognizant Soft Vision <clears throat> product day. And yeah, I, I think there's a really great book that 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 really, I think, set me down this path of believing this, which is Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned um, by Stanley. And um, he's, you know, a really amazing researcher in the realm of uh, open-ended AI, evolutionary AI. He's done a lot around novelty-based search. And these are things that are super interesting to me. I mean, I think if, if I could work in anything that was like hard AI science, it would be open-ended evolution. Um, he's, he's over at OpenAI now. Um, but that to me is like super interesting. And, and basically what he says in this book, you know, why greatness cannot be planned is it's, it's actually, it, it reads like a bunch of papers that were about this kind of um, novelty-based search, this idea of pick breeder, which is really, it was a, a genetic algorithm that would create pictures and then human beings would judge the fitness by saying whether they're aesthetically pleasing or not. And what we got from is from this like very rudimentary kind of ovals and, and, and shades to like full color pictures of butterflies um, that were created by these things, but with no objective in sight, right? And, and that to me is really, really amazing. And there was no way that that person at the beginning where they just see these like ovals overlapping or, or like black and white shading could have ever thought that would have turned into a butterfly, but it eventually did, right? And so to me, that's where I think this novelty-based search, that's where 
this objective is deception is, is kind of his term. I, I'm paraphrasing, but the deception is that we believe we can find some certainty in the world and that there is an objective. When the reality is, is that there was no way that evolution had an objective, right? If we, if we're, you know, I, I don't want to get like religious or spiritual at this, but, but there's no way that like someone said back in the bacterium days, this is eventually going to turn into human and, here, human, and here's the exact constraints that we're going to put on top of this bacteria to now have it evolve into a human, right? Um, same thing with a vacuum tube and a computer. And same thing with basically anything we're doing today and what we're, where we want to be in the future. So I think there's always, that, that's why maybe values are so important. I, I, it's really hard to codify, codify values because it's, it's part of it is how do we think about it and rationalize to ourselves not doing something that we think could make us successful um, for actually uh, adhering to our values versus organizational power structures, which I think end up, you know, and that's that's the biggest threat, I think, we talk about like machine learning, data science, all these things where it's about automation of something. It's really, I'm more concerned about power structures and bureaucracies being perpetuated that can never be broken down again, right? Um, dominant logic talks about this a lot too, in the sense that dominant logic is essentially as humans, we use mental models that have made us successful in the past towards future decision-making. This means, though, that we end up accepting way less variance in the types of ideas that we'll consider because they don't fit our previous models, even though things that may have changed enough that we need to now consider that. So I, I think living in uncertainty and actually embracing uncertainty and burning off the need for certainty is something that I'm constantly trying to teach product managers to do a better job of. Because if they're not the ones that are going to embrace that uncertainty and then work with, you know, groups that have to do very certain things, you know, and maybe it's unfair for me to group in people that are training models as well, because there's a lot of uncertainty in how a model will actually react, right? Um, even when we start talking about like simulated data sets, it's are we actually just reintroducing bad bias into the system in some way? And so there's there's lots of interesting things about what are the types of roles that that you know, dance or embrace uncertainty in some ways. And I would say that's product managers, that's generative user researchers, that's business development people. Um, the people that I think embrace more certainty tend to be, you know, straight up engineers, uh, designers, people that do usability, right? Like those are all the people that that it needs to be shipped at some point. And uh, usually all these other people that are about uncertainty are getting in the way of like, well, are we building the right thing? Are we considering the right problems, right? Right. Well, okay. You'll get no argument from me there. And I would, I would add to your list of people who really want certainty in AI. Sadly, are a lot of the executives who figure, okay, AI is the hot thing. We have to start doing it. I, I can say this with some confidence because as a consultant in this space, I've had those conversations with the execs who just say, well, yeah, we have to do AI. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> and what, well, I, I will say though, one of the things I, I do these days, whether uh, talking with an existing client or a prospective client is, I do what I like to call my anti-sales pitch, which is, yes, we're pretty sure we want to work together, but let me explain to you just a few of the common failure modes of an AI project. And this is not to try to scare you away. It's just more that I want you to be fully informed of what might happen because what I don't want is to sell you a bunch of snake oil and say, AI is amazing. It will solve every problem you have. And then six months down the line, I have to explain, okay, so that model I built that isn't really predicting anything worth a damn. I'm sorry, right? I don't, I don't want to head down that road. But I say that because you mentioned this, this list of roles in a typical company that, that understand and appreciate and embrace uncertainty, right? Um, 
for good or ill, I would say that uh, a number of data scientists fall on the other side of that. And that's, it's not their fault. Yeah. It's that it's very easy to fool yourself into thinking that a model, even though you know it's not deterministic, will have a very narrow set of possible outcomes, right? Um, this is also something, quite frankly, you sometimes see it on Wall Street as well, where you're talking about the Black-Scholes formula for evaluating options um, or options risk or the evaluate risk formula, which caught a lot of heat after the 2008 financial crisis, right? The problem is that in both cases, they're assuming they're assuming a more narrow world that actually exists. And so I bring this up because it's not just the, the stereotype of the non-mathy people who have trouble with uncertainty. It's sometimes people in the sort of mathy, quanty world as well. The reason I'm giving this sort of long prelude, and one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on this show today is because you know, one of the things you and I have talked about before is how you're helping spread this word of embrace and accept uncertainty in the places you work. And I was really hoping, you know, for those data scientists out there who are listening, who do understand uncertainty and who are trying to share that with their companies, how do you do it? How do you get people in these companies to understand that there are a wide variety of possible outcomes and we have to be prepared for some number of them and we have to be prepared for the ones we can't really think about and just deal with it? What do you do? The scenarios that come up where uncertainty happens, I think because of the power structure of of organizations, ends up turning into blame or or accountability. And I use that with scare quotes, right? Um, We and and I think that that is part of the problem with a lot of these organizations is that they're not set up in a way where, in some way, power is redistributed within the organization, right? And and this gets back to a lot of the idea of like agile transformation, um, which you know in some ways is snake oil because. and, and, you know, you can make lots of money selling snake oil, right? I, I don't think we should like poo-poo snake oil next to, necessarily because of that. But I would say that um, the issue ends up being, can you take on an experimental mindset or a hypothesis-driven mindset? If you have a natural curiosity for the world, you assume that you will not be able to really ever get everything right. And, and that's okay, right? Like, I think this is why when you look at really great OKRs, for example, right, OKRs are about how are you setting what the objective is, but then understanding that you may not meet it because you haven't found the right leverage point yet, right? When it comes to some of the best data scientists I've worked with, and I definitely think that, you know, Facebook does a great job with the data scientist role. And as far as partnering between data scientists and product managers, as well as the trifecta, and I would, I would actually say the trifecta here is, is product managers, uh, qualitative user researchers, and data scientists, Right. And so the data scientist is there not only as someone that is, you know, the issue for a lot of this stuff is that for us to create something brand new, we need to understand something new about the behavior we already track. And this is the reason why I think things like data lakes or swamps or bayous or whatever we want to call them uh, don't work out the way that people want is because you're basically taking the answer and you're ripping the question off of it. Right. And so then you have this data point that you think is actually in some way, pure or truth or something like that, when the reality is there was a context that was included with that data point. And so um, this is where I think it's really interesting when working with data scientists, great data scientists, right? Um, I will be talking about something like I want to be able to, I have a hypothesis about this feature, right? We've seen some type of generative research that we're not solving this problem for end customers. So what I think is I think actually a way for us to measure this is through this X measurement. And the data scientist then has a conversation with me saying, well, we don't really, we don't collect that today, right? So that's one thing. We do collect these other signals, 
But here's the problem you're going to have with using these signals if you try to use these signals to understand and validate your hypothesis, right? And here's the type of levels of of, bit, of like number of people going through that we need to start to be sure about this. What is our confidence level? And so I think that is where, I don't know, maybe data scientists don't always have to embrace uncertainty because the truth is, is that they need to deal with the data that they have access to or the data that they're then going to um, ask or get in some way, right? So, so maybe that idea of being more situated within what is the reality of this data landscape, even though it is imperfect in some way, is better than always thinking about what is the better data I could get, right? Like there's always going to, and, and this is the thing, right? Is like, if I'm going to be building something that's brand new, the real metric that I want, the one that is most important for me to understand is probably something that we never thought of before. Um, like I, there's a great um, uh, tw tweet that I, I finally found and then lost again, but it was like, it was like this tweet that I, I just want to be like a book, right? And it, it's the tweet basically says that to build a real advantage, you should measure things that other people can't. And that to me is really interesting. There was the argument that's part of this is that say like Zappos, a lot of their success was not worrying so much about the, you know, because they were a customer, like a customer support centric culture, right? Like um, it wasn't so much about how do you measure the shortness of calls, which is what a lot of people maximize in the customer support world, right? But it was more about like, what was this happiness that was really hard to measure in some way? And once they could get a handle on that, they could see what things made people happy or made people unhappy about their experience. They could then optimize their experience towards happiness, which sounds really weird. Like I'm using the word optimize, but I'm using the word happiness, right? And, and those things seem like they should not go together in some way. But it was a measure that they were able to get that was very hard for other retailers to really understand. And so that's one possible reason. Again, we may be like post hoc fitting them to a model, of course. Um, but I think there is something very valuable about, you know, even in, in going back to OKRs, just because I've been having doing OKRs like all week with a bunch of people. I've just started to find that that the KRs that are really interesting for an objective tend to be something new that you want to measure because it will show you progress towards something that's differential, differentiated from what you're doing today. Because like if you were already doing it, if you're already measuring it, you already like pulled all of the information out of it that you need. And it turns into a business impacting metric because you probably converted it into revenue at some point. But that that removes you from this whole idea of what are the what's the what's the information you should be measuring from the system that is actually about the person that is being impacted by this. And that that to me is, I think, way more, way more valuable than it is to just like look at business impacting stuff or um, you know, and and I, I think there's a great model for this is when you talk about how you start to judge whether an experiment is valuable or not. It's this trade-off again between we want to actually get to business impact because that means things like revenue, but we also don't want to look at say click-through rate because click-through rate doesn't get us all the way to this like outcome that is we're measuring some type of value around. And so it's like, how far away are you able to actually throw this? Like how far um, is the ripple in the pond to a certain extent in how you can actually judge that, right? And there's a, there's a great Medium article that I can send you the link to afterwards. But I think that's like a, the, the, there's a bunch of things around this data that I think, you know, you know, maybe getting back to your main point, like should data scientists actually be embracing uncertainty? And, and then how much do they cross over to the product management world, right? And maybe not trying to be too restrictive, you know, a, a true Scotsman around a, a data scientist. The data scientist that I worked with a lot at, at Facebook, for example, he was an ex-product manager. Um, and so he brought great perspectives to the work that we were doing together because 
it was valuable for him for us to be able to talk about those trade-offs together, even though he was still situated in the data science world, right? And he would then work, we had data engineers as well that were the ones that would wire everything up. Um, but like, anyways, that, that was kind of how it worked there. And I thought that was really valuable is to be able to, you, you want to have those types of almost like diametrically opposed roles. And this is similar to the idea of the product manager and the project manager. You don't want them to be the same person because the project manager is to your, you know, to the idea of risk, they're about reducing risk, right? They, they know the ways that projects go wrong. They know that if they do not keep things on track, things will go off the rails, right? They're the risk reducers of this world. But if they are the same person as the person that's trying to embrace uncertainty, you get something that is very deterministic in the system, which, you know, again, determinism is not seen as intelligence. It's not seen as differential. Um, anyways, I, that's the thing I would just question is, is how much should you have people that are on the other side when it comes to trying to work with roles that are about uncertainty, whether they should be more certain about things. I don't think it's, it's neither or I, I do think it's much more about finding where to draw those lines. Also going back to your other points about data scientists and should they need to embrace uncertainty and how much that helps them in the role. I really liked what you said before that the data scientists, they have to work with the data they have. Like, I tend to see a model as having a very narrow viewpoint in life based on the, the snapshot point in time of its training data. On the other hand, I think data scientists would do well to think about uncertainty because when you develop a predictive model, your goal is to put it out into the real world and interact with real world data coming in. And you know, the whole reason we have model, the very definition of model drift is when your model's training data starts to differ from what's happening in the real world. If you, as a data scientist, assume the world and your training data will always be the same, you're in for trouble. I mean, look, the extreme case of that, uh, another word I was hoping to not mention during this call, but I will, it's the pandemic. You know, that's been the running joke for the last 18 months, which is the COVID-19 pandemic, amongst everything else it's done, it has wrecked every time series chart ever. If you've had any sort of historical data, the pandemic just ruined it. Right. (laughs) So... The fact that we should be uncertain to, about the future and that we should always be skeptical of the things that we built actually fit the needs um, of what we've, we're trying, of the people we're trying to serve, right? And, and again, we're always just intermediating people. That's, that's all that these technologies do is intermediate people. There's never a time that you build something and you don't involve another human being. Th- this is where the complexity of the world, right? The way that the fact is, is that there's lots and lots of agents that are out there, I think should build at least this model in your head that you need to be aware of the fact that agents will make change for their own benefit a lot of the time. And that that then causes this type of model drift that you're talking about. Um, I, I think that's, that, that's why I've I've started to think when we, when, we, when we, like technology in general, whenever building these types of systems, an ecosystem approach is is much more interesting, I think, for that. And and so what I mean by ecosystem approach is that, um, you know, kind of like the classical food web, there's a bunch of things that are interacting that if you change one of them, it will change behavior in other places in the system that maybe you didn't realize would actually happen. Um, I think when we talk about technology, right, I've thought a lot about this from the standpoint of communal computing in the home. And so the home itself ends up being an ecosystem of technology that, there are people, there are devices, and then there's services that also end up intermediating people through devices, right? It's, there's never a time that a service actually interacts directly with the human being. There's always a device that's in between. 
these these people all get together. So like the fact that I may take photos on my my personal phone, I add it to a service that then puts it on my digital picture frame, that then then puts it on my my mom's digital picture frame, and then she sees this great photo of our kids. Like all that stuff is an ecosystem in some way. And the moment that you end up losing the understanding of how this model is servicing a particular part of the ecosystem, that's when you get weird and bad effects, essentially. And, and this gets back to, I think, a really important framework for privacy, which is called contextual integrity. It's really this privacy framework that, that comes from the Privacy and Context book by Helen Nissenbaum. And I think it's a really great way to think about privacy. And the reason why it really helps inside of this ecosystem approach or a network approach or a graph approach to the way the world works is that just because I share a piece of information um, through a particular method for a particular purpose to another person, that if that person suddenly changed, it would be crazy to assume that the same norms apply to that other person, right? So if there's a difference between my wife versus my kids versus my mom versus a stranger, those are all very different norm contexts for what type of photo would be appropriate. And so Contextual integrity really tries to hold that to five key kind of attributes, but the ones that are really interesting is like the sender of the information, the receiver of the information, and then the information itself. And there's a couple other things about like what norms are governing it, like is it in a school situation, in a medical situation, or whatever. And what it comes down to is that you're really there to try to, you're not, it's not about the idea that I want to keep all of my personal information private, and then there's a bunch of other information I just consider to be public in, in general, but it's that I want to control the flow of my information. And I think this gets to a lot of interesting problems that I think data scientists and people that are building and training models are going to have to contend with is that there, there is a regulatory kind of direction that is not only countrywide, right? So the way GDPR works or the U.S. for privacy regulation, but it comes down to a state level as well, right? So the CCA in California versus the idea of Illinois' suit with Facebook around facial data, right? Um this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem, especially for very large data sets, because did you collect this data in a way that respected those privacy expectations and norms in the first place? Okay. And I'm betting you for like 90% of the data that's out there, maybe even 99%, the answer is probably no. That, that to me is interesting from, a, from this, this idea of the ecosystem, again, getting back to that and how we model it is that um, we need to start, I think, creating new ways of understanding this context because it ends up being... You know, as da- like Dr. Sally Eplin, she she's done a lot of really amazing work around polysocial reality, which is this kind of like, how do we think about different people exchanging messages in a network? And what does that mean when there's automated agents that are making decisions about messages? And how does that change what happens here? So I, there's a whole body of work, 10 years worth of papers that are really interesting to dive into around this. But I, the, the part that I really like from her work is, as well as this idea of design individualism. So design individualism is this concept that it's just me and my device and that's it, right? There's no broader network. There's no other people that are involved. Even when we talk about a social network, it never considers the fact that there's like another person on the other end reading something. And all of our data ends up being collected in this way that it's my user ID with this action ID with this like other attributes attached on top of it. When the reality is that it's about how these networks work together, so I think the future of a lot of this stuff, and I was just reading a really interesting article in uh, Quanta about this, where this idea of graph theory maybe is over-limiting what we're doing in the sense that there's only the ability for a graph node to be connected to another graph node. 
Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a one or two way relationship when the reality is, is actually there's relationships that are more amorphous than that. And so you could have an N connection between a node and a bunch of other nodes. And yes, you could simulate that with a node to node type of connection, but they're saying that there's a lot of information that like the idea of everybody coming to a meeting together and being in the same room, it does connect us individually, but it doesn't really, it actually connects us as a group in some way that could, should be a click in traditional graph theory, but is actually from the standpoint, it's, it's not exactly that because it's, it's not about each individual connection. It's about all of our connections. So I think there's like a lot of really interesting problems that we're going to start coming up against, especially when we start trying to understand these bigger social data problems is how do we store this is incredibly limiting in the way that we start to understand it. And then also traversing that, right? Like graph, like all these graph query type of systems that are starting to come out, like it's really hard, <laughs> right? Like it's computationally <laughs> expensive in the way we built it. Like it's just like a lot of problems. And when I was in college, I was a TA for a, a person that was like an expert in graph theory. And I mean, it's a really, it's a really interesting subject, but I, I think this is like a, like something that we need to start thinking about for the future is to really like understand these data sets. It's no longer about this like table that is maybe normalized, right? But it's about how are all these things interconnected in some way between people. And I don't think we're doing enough to actually understand the way to understand the impacts of things. It, it's funny. It's something I've resisted the urge to tweet. It's just, you know, we, we've heard that, that oft-quoted line, 80% of a data scientist's work is data cleaning and data prep. And so the, the tweet I've been holding in boils down to that, that 80% of work that's data prep, that's the valuable part of your job, right? This notion of, yes, you're going to train a model and evaluate it and that sort of thing, but when it doesn't perform the way it should, how do you fix that? Well, you can tune some parameters in the model, or you can probably go back and learn about your data set a bit more and figure out, oh, hey, there's this weird feature you've been including. I don't think that does anything. Or... Circling back to your point, just understanding more of the context around this data. Under what circumstances did we collect this data? From whom? Why? I, I guess from going with this is this takes the notion of the very basic data dictionary and just it, it really grows it quite a bit because it's beyond just what are these fields, but what do these fields actually mean? And how is that going to play out when we put this model into the real world? Yeah. In I, I think this is again that that's the biggest problem with this idea of a data collection is you're 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 removing so much of this context that then could also tell you like is this context biased in some way or is this context not helpful in this other situation um, and that that the I think the that's the greatest problem with these data dictionaries is it ends up all you really know is like underscore separated like couple words about what this was and you're suddenly in this realm of guessing you know, huge uh, ontological type of questions that, that, that probably cannot be answered. So I, I think there needs to be some type of evolution of the way that data science thinks about this and that that question that was originally asked, the context in which it was asked, right? The, the person, what their drivers were in some way. I mean, this almost gets to one of the techniques we would do a lot as a design consultancy is we start to build personas around the stakeholders that we had inside of our organization uh, that we were working with. And we, we didn't just look at the idea of like, what is their goal, right? Because there's lots of different types of goals, but like, what is their goal inside this organization versus their personal goal, right? What is their fear about this organization or this work versus their personal fear? And all of those things are, I think are super important in, in adding to that context, because without that context, you may not be able to see any type of actual bias that, that was collected with that as well. Um, so I, I definitely, I don't know what the right way is. I mean, 
this is this is actually a hard problem when we talk about onboarding people into a team as well, right? How do you give the right amount of context so that people so that people don't just like come in and say, "Hey, you did everything wrong here," all right? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna now tell you everything that you need to do to make this better. Um, without that ability to understand the historical context, I, I talk about this all the time in, in the world of strategy and decision making as well because. Um, especially decision forcing cases are a really interesting way. So this is like a type of a case study where essentially you walk someone through some past event. You give a lot of context about the person that was making decisions, right? You end up stopping at certain decision points and then talking about what would everybody else do? So in a military, military context, this could be uh, some battle that starts happening or some event starts happening. And it's, Basically, here's your background as like a commander or squad leader or whatever that is. You get to this point and you then have to give kind of commander's intent. What is the command you give in this case? What I think is really interesting about that and, and actually, I think there's a way to use these types of models and case studies to also provide historical context, right? Because what you're learning about is that this decision was not easy. This decision was not nuanced. It, it, it had a lot of nuance. It was not simple in some way. And I, I almost wonder, like, you know, would the ideal be that you could put yourself in the shoes of the executives for all the decisions that were made up to this point with all of the reasons that they gave them? Because all that we end up seeing when it comes to decision making is we end up seeing the aftermath of the decision. We, you, we rarely see, unless you were there in that room having that, that, that discussion or that argument, all of the different factors. And, and even then, there are forces that are still pushing you in certain directions based on the organization, the way it's built. You know, I don't think there's any way that you get out of the world that you need to have historical context. Um, but maybe, you know, going back to our, our discussion about balance of these things is that there is a reason to also divorce yourself from that historical context because you can create something new. But yeah, I, I think this, this gets at why we should just be so uncertain about things is that there's no panacea uncertainty about understanding the context of everything that happened. And there's no comfort in the uncertainty of the world because we're not meant to live in uncertainty. Why don't we end this here for now? As long as you can promise me, I can bring you back in a couple of weeks because I do really want to get into communal computing. You've written some articles about that. We'll link to them in the show notes and we can talk about them in greater detail when we talk again. That sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, then, given that, Chris, thank you so much for part one of our interview. And for the listeners, I hope you've really enjoyed it. Chris will be back in our next episode, and we'll dig deeper and show some of the other topics that were on our list for today before we spiraled off into paths unknown. Well, thank you so much for the time today. It was really great to talk to you and, and looking forward to the next conversation. As you can tell, I probably have a few thoughts about it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I've been your host, Q McCallum. Senior Content Advisor at Formulated By. As always, I'd like to extend my thanks to the Formulated By production team for taking care of all of the audio and everything else that makes this podcast possible. Formulated By is the company behind Data Science Salon. These are multi-day events where leading data scientists share their experience, expertise, and best practices on how to apply AI and machine learning to different industries. We have a number of events taking place over the next few months. So if you're interested in attending, you can check out the Data Science Salon website, that's datascience.salon, for the full schedule and registration. I hope to see you there. 